0: Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi, I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. G'day, my name is Professor Andrew Lloyd and I'm an infectious diseases physician based at the Kirby Institute, the University of New South Wales and also working at Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. Today I'm gonna talk to you about influenza-like illness with a very deliberate approach to try and guide the approach to what can be quite challenging in general practice. What I'm gonna do is actually try and define what we mean by influenza-like illness for you. Say something about the epidemiology, that is how common is it in the community and how commonly does it present in general practice. And then highlight for you one of the features about that makes it difficult to uh, differentially diagnose influenza-like illnesses. And that is because they are all largely underpinned, despite what infection is the cause, by what's called the acute sickness response. I'm going to talk about that. And then moving more to a pragmatic approach to the, for the clinical setting, I'm going to say a few words about the history, an approach to the history, an approach to the clinical findings, and to investigation and finally empirical management. So the term influenza-like illness really actually largely arises out of surveillance, so epidemiological surveillance studies. And that is where we, it's helpful uh, to understand public health responses to infectious diseases, especially that some that could be influenza, to have a definition that's not dependent upon a delayed diagnostic test result. And so for instance, The WHO makes a definition of influenza-like illness for surveillance purposes, of an acute respiratory infection with a measured fever at or above 38 degrees, accompanied by cough and of recent onset. And that's a, a pragmatic definition that's designed to definitely encompass influenza, but also you can picture it would capture many other comparable illnesses. In Australia, we have, again, a a largely uh, surveillance um, uh, organisation that tries to understand this same sort of issue in general practice. That's the Australian Sentinel Practices Research Network, based in South Australia, I think. And this group has a definition that says it's a combination of fever, cough and fatigue, uh, which is an interesting uh, addition. But today I think it's probably better for our purposes if I take a more clinical approach to this and really to suggest to you that I'm gonna talk about any infectious disease for which influenza is in the differential diagnosis. And you can picture that that could range from at the more severe end of the common cold, definitely could plausibly include COVID infection, definitely would include influenza, but might range out to many other potential atypical pneumonia pathogens, even to some of the mononucleoses like EBV infection on occasion presenting similarly. So how common is an influenza-like illness? This is data from that Sentinel surveillance network that I flagged to you. And what you can see is that because the tagline here really is influenza-like, the epidemiology runs a seasonal, seasonal trend that goes with influenza that is it's the winter months or the winter and early spring months. You can see though that there is a little um, tag across to the left so as early as March and I think this slide's a couple of years old, I think if we had data from 2018-19 and definitely in 2020 we would find that the the true influenza season has been earlier And actually the addition of uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID infection has definitely brought an upswing as early as March in in Australia or February-March in Australia and and now sustained transmission and many influenza-like illnesses. So now moving to just a little bit of a discussion about pathogenesis because again, I think this is helpful to understand what potentially are or are not distinguishing features of any pathogen. This whole notion of what we sometimes call the acute sickness response comes from a sentinel study that was done by a veterinary scientist, actually, and published in the late 1980s, who, who clued into the fact that when, when animals, actually of all sorts of different species, became unwell, they, they often exhibited very closely comparable behaviours. So because he was a vet, they could measure temperatures. They say, OK, they get a fever. And then he noticed that they slept a lot and that they weren't too keen on their tucker anymore. Um, And that they they sat down rather than running around the yard. And so he put all that together and recognised that it occurred across different animal species and said, I reckon there's something that underpins this. And he called this the acute sickness response. And even at that time, he'd already worked out a little bit about the fact that this acute sickness response, it's a manifestation of the host immune system seeking to clear the pathogen. So just fleshing that out a little bit more in the human context, what we know is the acute sickness response to many, many different infectious diseases, but certainly all of the ones we're talking about today. It includes demonstrable fevers, often with sweats and chills and sometimes with rigors. Muscle aches and pains, and like that definition flagged, commonly also fatigue. In addition, there's some other interesting things which I think everybody, probably everybody on the planet, actually identifies with if they can remember back to their last flu like illness. They'll also know that if they were trying to do their tax return on the day they got their flu like illness, they probably would not be as sharp as attack and so they may well make some mistakes in the return. So I guess the advice is don't put your tax return in when you've got the flu. In addition, they'd probably also notice that they're off their food, they have hyperalgesia, otherwise known as heightened sensitivity to pain, sleep a lot, sometimes like 20 out of 24 hours, and they tend to just curl up in bed is the gist. And in addition, another interesting phenomenon that's a bit easier to discern in humans than it is in animals, that is that they're pretty grisly. All of those things actually do not come directly from the pathogen. They come indirectly from the host whose job, whose immune system, whose job is to fight off the pathogen. So the good news is that in general, that's a moderately successful attack to fight off the pathogen. The bad news, you might say, is a bit of a price we pay with a whole set of illness manifestations driven by that immune response. And in particular, if we think about what what are the underpinnings of that acute sickness response, we know that, in particular, there are some what we might call immunological hormones, cytokines. In the old days, they used to be called endogenous pyrogens, so factors made from within that generated fever. Nowadays we know most of those endogenous pyrogens were what we would call pro-inflammatory cytokines made by the immune system, key part of the defence against infection, but also drive these illness manifestations. We now know also, even though these phenomena are generated by the immune system, so what you might say is in the body, actually their target of action is largely in the brain. So they they act on the brain in the hypothalamus, for instance, to increase the thermostat and so therefore to increase the metabolic rate and make the body temperature 38 degrees because that makes it tougher for the pathogen to replicate. And, And all of the other manifestations I've just alluded to generate in the same way from within the brain. Just one piece of data, actually from some research of mine from a while ago, just illustrates exactly this. Two of those pro-inflammatory cytokines are what we call interleukin-1-beta, or IL-1-beta, and interleukin-6. And this is a study we did with one of the influenza-like illnesses, that is acute Q fever. That's an animal born a zoonotic infection, which causes a nasty, febrile, flu-like illness. And here what you can see is if we measure in the serum or more particularly if we just take white blood cells and culture them overnight and ask them to do what they're going to do and produce factors that would be released into the serum, you can see there are strong correlations with a whole range of those illness manifestations that I spoke about with the level of the cytokine that's produced. So there's a large body of data of this type that says, yep, these factors are are the underpinnings of the acute sickness response. So, how do we deal with, moving now more towards clinical practice, how do we deal with uh, influenza-like illnesses in clinical practice? Well, we need a strategy, because actually if I gave you the complete list, what we would find is that there's a vast array of individual pathogens that could go onto this slide. Literally, I would reckon maybe a hundred at least. And so that's not terribly helpful. So I think it's an important clinical practice point to suggest that common things occur commonly. And so here on this slide, I've just dealt with the common or the relatively common, you might say. And then in addition, I think it's helpful to think somewhat syndromally about the influenza-like illnesses. So a good proportion of them fall into what we might have traditionally called an atypical pneumonia. That, that's sometimes also referred to as a pneumonia where the big feature is not actually cough and, and pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath. It's of a, more of a systemic illness, uh, an influenza-like illness, where there might be a bit of dry cough but it's not the dominant feature. So in that context, I'd, I'd nominate for you the big five pathogens here, and these are uh, non-viral pathogens in the first instance. So that's Chlamydia pneumoniae, Legionella, which causes Legionnaire's disease, Mycoplasma pneumonia, and I've already alluded to Q fever, which the causative agent is Coxiella burnetii, the animal acquired infection. And then another animal, or in particular, a bird acquired infection is Psittacosis. Um, which makes it to the list although it's, it's significantly less common than the ones above. And then probably, definitely making it onto that list in 2021, uh, or 2020-21 let's say, would be influenza A and B, and now COVID-19 in, in 2021. There are others, not quite so high in the, in the prevalence, but para influenza can look very much like influenza. And then interestingly, some of the mononucleoses, like Epstein-Barr virus, or cytomegalovirus, or even HIV infection, can really present, they often present with rash and lymphadenopathy, but often it's more of just a febrile illness with aches and pains, definitely could be mistaken for influenza. And then moving, Slightly more exotic, to the rickettsial infections. So t- uh, tick typhus and scrub typhus and Flinders Island spotted fever, those are the Australian tick-borne rickettsial infections. In general, you'd like to think that there's a tick bite and maybe even an, what we'd call an escar, but often it's actually a pretty nonspecific influenza-like illness. And so I'll allude in, in a moment to the fact that you've got to think about the epidemiological setting. And then if your patient's a return traveller, the differential diagnosis definitely broadens. Definitely to include things like dengue virus or maybe even chikungunya, uh, malaria, leptospirosis. And I'll, I'll mention some of the sort of epidemiological clues to, to how you might deal with uh, focusing on those. So how do we focus on some of those things? So first of all, from the history, If you're thinking of an atypical pneumonia, those were the five or six on the top of that previous slide, in general you'd like some cough to be present. Often it's a dry, non-productive cough unassociated with pleuritic pain, to sort of distinguish it from the traditional community acquired pneumonias for which pneumococcus would be high on the list, where you would expect a more low bar pattern, productive cough with sputum and pleuritic pain. One of the things that distinguishes Q fever, that again I've alluded to before, is that they have, patients with acute Q fever tend to have quite severe headaches. It's not the only pathogen that does that, so psittacosis definitely also, but it's often a severe retroorbital headache and drenching sweats that's a marker for the, the history of acute Q fever. And then if you put that together and you're talking to the patient, you said, oh, where do you work? And if he says, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, a stock and station agent or I work in the abattoir or plausibly I work in the air conditioning industry, you might start to think about Legionella or um, I'm a bird, uh, you know, I run a chicken farm. Maybe, maybe you would think about psittacosis or I have, have a bird bath in the back garden even. With regard to the viral pathogens, so here we're talking about influenza A and B and nowadays COVID, really the money there is, I don't think there's anything particularly unique and I'm gonna talk a bit about more this about comparisons between influenza and COVID. I don't think there's too much that's specific about the history except for contacts. So if somebody else at home or at work has been crook with a similar illness, that's a clue that this is a, a transmissible infectious disease, probably with high transmissibility. And so that should up the ante for the thought of of influenza or or for COVID. Or nowadays, I guess we'd be talking about COVID hotspots or contexts where they might have been in contact with somebody with COVID infection. And then moving down the list as you can picture EBV, so-called kissing disease, you know, teenagers or young adults who uh, have been kissing or having perhaps sexual contacts, men who have sex with men for HIV, tick bites uh, or tick exposure environments for those rickettsial infections. And I can't emphasise enough, as a general statement, it is important to ask that question, have you recently come back from overseas? And I usually generally use a threshold of about a month. So in the last month have you come from somewhere overseas, particularly low and middle income countries, not exclusively, but, but they're the ones you'll focus on particularly. So are there distinctive uh, clinical findings or clinical features? You might have heard, for instance, on the news about how loss of smell is the, is, or loss of smell and loss of taste is the unique feature of COVID infection. I'll illustrate in a moment how actually that's not, sadly, not not actually correct or not not reliable enough to to hang your hat on it. There are some of those things that I've already alluded to that do have rash, so if you identified a rash it narrows the possibilities. The mononucleosis, obviously you're thinking prominent pharyngitis, lymphadenopathy and rash. I've alluded to the scar that goes with the tick bite, so a black crusted scab and local lymphadenopathy accompanied by fever and headaches as being the the clue for, and and being in an environment where there are ticks, that would be the clue for for a rickettsial infection. And then, you know, just back from Bali or just back from Indonesia elsewhere, I went for a swim in the the local uh, water uh, pools, might might have uh, seen some rats running around the streets to look for to think about leptospirosis. Definitely got bitten by a few mozzies. There's, there are some clues there that might point you in that direction. So, what about actually if we compare the prevalence and distinctive characteristics of some of the list uh, that you can see on the left-hand side there? Thinking about COVID. Common cold, influenza, or even non infectious things like traditional allergies, like a hay fever. Well, even in allergies, you can have a low grade fever, you know, so 37.9 or even 38, and dry cough definitely. So, if I just point you to, to loss of smell and taste, actually they're pretty common in influenza and in the common cold, especially if you've got a runny nose and definitely true in hay fever. So sadly, if you go down the list, there aren't that many distinguishing elements. Very upper respiratory tract infections help you a bit for the common cold. The presence of um, uh, fevers and chills and rigors, pretty uncommon in the common cold and more likely in some of the, the flu or COVID or other atypical pneumonia syndromes. And fatigue not so much of a feature of the common cold but definitely prominent in those other conditions. So you can see so far there are some possible clues that could point you in the right direction but it is a bit of a guessing game. So. How are we going to approach this in a, in a clinical and diagnostic sense? Well, I think the first element to flag to you, as illustrated in that little graphic in the top right, in some ways your most important job is to rule out the serious and sinister. So it is definitely true that bacterial infections, so bacterial sepsis of all sorts, uh, all sorts of causes, can present with a flu-like illness. And so you do need to think about that. Are there clues here that say this person's actually septic but with a bacterial infection? And you might seek to gain some more direct evidence of that by urgently organising a chest x-ray to look for pneumonia and a blood count in particular to look for neutrophilia and maybe a C-reactive protein that's above 100. I was thinking, oh, okay, neutrophilia, high CRP, this could be bacterial. And then in a more diagnostic sense, you remember in 2021, we're very big on respiratory swabs, especially for COVID, but we do have rapid diagnostics for a whole range of respiratory pathogens. So it's not a bad strategy to test for all of those things and then consider empirical treatment and early review. Those would be the, the strategic approaches, or if you're worried, if your gut tells you this could be more serious, then consider referring into hospital for further diagnostics. If the person's just moderately unwell, you know, they're in the walking wounded category, you might feel a bit more relaxed about getting the investigations done, providing a bit of symptomatic treatment, probably not antibiotics at this stage, but get an early review. So I'd like to see you tomorrow or next day at the latest. And the same applies for the more mildly unwell, just to make sure that there's not a a rapid progression. You remember in COVID, for instance, often five or six days of relatively mild, problematic, but mild symptoms, and then an acceleration of respiratory symptoms and hospitalization is the trend in those who end up with severe disease. So what about empirical management? Well, we definitely need to try and identify the serious and sinister. So that's particularly bacterial infection. I would also uh, encourage you to think about the potential for end organ compromise. Is there respiratory compromise? Is there evidence, especially if there might be pre-existing comorbidities of respiratory failure or cardiac compromise? or of somebody with renal disease, oh look, even if this is influenza and it's not too bad, on top of that background, it's gonna be a bit more serious. So so you have to have a triage approach to how you're going to to manage. But if none of those things, or you think the probabilities are against those things, then really the stalwart of your empirical uh, therapeutic approach to cover those non-viral pathogens would be doxycycline. And in general, we do 100 milligrams twice a day, plan for at least five days, but potentially for seven if the illness is prolonged. And if you have a high probability of suspicion of influenza, and it's within 72 hours of onset, and or there's other family members who you think are vulnerable populations, then you might consider prescribing uh, Tamiflu which will shorten the duration and reduce the transmissibility of influenza. And again, you want to encourage early review because at this stage, you haven't got a good sense of the trajectory of the illness. And I want to finish just by putting uh, putting the boot in, I guess gently into Donald Trump to just remind you about that public health aspect. So all you can say about COVID in the US is it's a public health disaster. And part of our approach that's somewhat better in Australia is to be aware of the need for public health, for contact tracing, for some of these things like Legionella, like Q fever which is notified by the laboratory, or in 2021 uh, COVID infection. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.